All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, let's have some fun. Let's talk to some guests. Uh, joining me now is David Katniss. He is a senior politics reporter at US News and World Report. He recently wrote an article called Centrist Under Siege. Or a minority of vitriolic activists on Twitter distorting what Democrats really want. Very interesting conversation. David, welcome. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Uh, okay, uh, great to have you. So uh, let's get into it. Um, so, uh, David, I certainly object to that title. Uh, I uh, object to that subtitle. I don't know if you did the titles or subtitles yourself, and I know oftentimes the writers don't. Uh, but it. you. I did. I can take. I can take credit for them. Okay, got you. So uh, let me tell you why I object, and let's break it down. Okay. Uh, so it is positive throughout your article, and you quote uh, Third Way, the corporate think tank that uh, is for Democrats but not for progressives. Uh, you quote a lot of the uh, conservative uh, Democrats, uh, and you frame them as centrist. But in order to be centrist, you'd have to be popular in the whole country, wouldn't you? So. Progressives have issues like Medicare for all at 70%, Green New Deal at 81%, raising tax on the rich at 70%, legalizing marijuana at over 60%, and I can go on and on and on. Wouldn't those be centrist positions? Uh, no, I don't think those would be centrist positions. I think there is a poll, Gallup poll, that's in this story that just has Democrats and independent Democrats straight up, national poll. They say, do you want the party to be more liberal? Or do you want it to be more moderate? And 50, you know, it's a majority support. It's 54 to 41, uh, more moderate. Now we can we can start to decide what a liberal and what a moderate is, and I think people have different definitions of that. But I think if you're for Medicare for all, if you are for reparations for slavery, if you're for a Green New Deal, you are not only progressive, you're you're pretty ultra progressive. And in talking to some people in the party, not all of them who want to be named, they say, look, obviously, you know, the online activists, um, you know, the people that are the loudest in the room, per se, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be on Facebook, they're embracing this. They want their candidates moving this way. But there is a fear that this, the, the wholehearted embrace of all these issues may be tougher in a general election uh, against Donald Trump or against any Republican nominee. Right, um, so that's what they say, and progressives say something else, which is the facts. But okay, so let's break it down a little further. So, David, on the issue of the Gallup poll that you quote, uh, to quote yourself actually from that article, and I know you wrote it a little while back, uh, it's actually 54% that say they would rather have the Democratic move, Party move to the center as opposed to the left, okay, 41% for the left. But you uh, point out at the uh, beginning of your article, I think accurately so, that liberal used to be a dirty word. So um, when you ask people about, hey, would you like to be in the center? Well, that's a very positive word. So people go, yeah, sure, I, I think I'm centrist. I don't think I'm radical. I'm not on the fringe. Yeah, I would like to be more in the center. Uh, and whereas the left, liberal, etc., has been uh, done a lot of marketing against uh, those words. So that's right. why I think it's more relevant to look at the policy issues. And right, some of the policy issues. I mean, the Medicare for all question—that's a very open question. When you can, when you say to people, "Do you want the government to provide health care for everyone and it's paid for?" That's going to, of course, that's going to pull seventy percent. I think what centrists or moderates might argue is, you start getting the details of Medicare for all and what it might mean, then it becomes a little more problematic. Do you want to keep your private insurance? Do you want the government to? to do you want to be forced to use government insurance? That, that's a little different discussion. 
Um, you know, there are questions that 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 private insurance reimburse medical providers at a higher rate than Med- Medicare and Medicaid. This has been brought up by some of the candidates. So, so do do providers are are they going to is the care they're providing going to be paid for? Um, you delve down in the details in these policies, and I think you might get a different polling result. And I think even the candidates, Elizabeth Warren, who I think you would agree is a progressive, I listened to her on another podcast the other day, and she said, "Look, of course I want Medicare for all, but there's different ways to do it. There's layers to it. Maybe we maybe we phase it in over four years. Maybe we start with younger people. It's not all at once." And I think even some of the more progressive pol- politicians that are running for president. If you you dive into the details with them, they know a more pragmatic way is a more incremental way at a lot of these policies, not wholesale, Medicare for all, overnight. Yeah. Uh, all right, so Elizabeth Warren was on this program and I asked her about that. And uh, I don't happen to love her answer on that. I, I like her as a candidate a lot, I love her as a senator. Um, so it's okay to disagree on those issues. But it's another thing to frame uh, the non-progressive position as the centrist position or the pragmatic position, uh, none of which, again, I th- think are supported by the facts. So here, uh, to further buttress that, let's talk about one of the things that you just mentioned there. You said, well, if you say government is gonna provide free healthcare for everybody, well, of course everybody's in favor of that. Really? Because I heard my whole life that, uh, that the American people are center right and they don't like government giveaways. In fact, Ivanka Trump just talked about that. But I didn't just hear it from Republicans, I heard it from Democrats. Oh No, 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 the American people don't want the government to give you stuff. So they were wrong, right? Because now you're at an of course that people want that. Well, look, I think public opinion has definitely moved on it. I think that's for certain. I mean, I agree with you on that. Public opinion on whether the government should provide healthcare has moved. Look, Obamacare was very unpopular when it was passed in the aftermath of its passage, 2009, 2010. Now we see that it's that's that it's a lot popular. It's popular in the 50% or, or more. So of course, government uh, intrusion, uh, government assistance has gotten more popular. I think overall, but I think under, but I think lay all these progressive policies out here together. Like you you mentioned the polling on all of them: Green New Deal, um, you know, uh, health care, $15 minimum wage. I mean, go down the litmus test. I think combined, taken together. That's where you get the pragmatic streak of people saying, "Look, we're not going to be able to pay for this." Uh, you know, we. I talk. You know, I talk to Democratic economists, progressive economists who say, "Look, Democrats no, there are no progressive economists that well, say okay. that." Dem- Democratic Dem- economists who Center also get American money progress. from pharmaceutical industry and the health insurance companies. Center for American Progress has economists, and, they, they, and you know what? But David, you know Center for American. <laughs> I'm going to have Neera Tannen on the show soon. You know sure. Center for American Progress does get funded by those drug companies. Well, sure, they all—they all get funded by someone. Uh, but you, but does that mean that they're not credible economists that, that know how to put together a budget and no fiscal numbers? I mean, I don't. That's you're 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 making that statement. All I'm saying is, even if you talk to the the the, the economists that want to see this happen, who agree with progressive values, say, look, Democrats are going to have to pick and choose. They're they're not going to get the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, a free college, you know. All at once, mm-hmm. and and that's so, a pragmatic. That's an answer that that I think the left is not allowing a candidate to make because you say that you get hammered, you get hell rained down on. Yeah, because one, we can get all those things. In fact, I think doing it all at once is easier. But again, that's not the heart of this conversation. First of all, FDR did everything at once. He beat the Nazis. He got social security. He got uh, uh, the New Deal. He got it all at once. 
And uh, incrementalism is not necessarily the correct answer. That is an assumption that people make. And, and look at how you framed it earlier, David. You called it government intrusion. But if 70% of the American people, as you just said, of course, believe that the government giving them health care is fantastic, then how is it a government intrusion? It's something that they want. And you know, you talk about the polls and you say, well, those polls are, yes, those issues are incredibly popular, but we haven't done a lot of propaganda against them yet. So when the Republicans and the Democratic establishment who all get paid by these companies, and yes, I do challenge them on whether they are earnest about that. I believe that the funding they get from those companies definitely affects their votes and their ideology. When they batter these issues, the poll numbers will go down. But we never use that standard for Republicans. If Republicans have 51% on any issue, which they almost never do, we go, hey, that's it, that's the 51%. Does any reporter ever go, yeah, it's 51%, but the Democrats are gonna batter them on that, and that'll probably fall? No, they just no, accept I mean, it. A perfect example is the tax bill that, that was passed by President Trump. It got through, it got passage. Everyone, you know, a lot of the media called it accomplishment from the president of the Republican Party. And then the Democrats ran against it, as you well know, during the 2018 midterms, and a lot, a lot of Republicans did, and support for that tax bill fell. No. And there was a lot of reporting on that. No, about David, how that's it actually was less popular. And that's, that's actually not that's true. Well documented. So, well David, documented. no, no, no. Look, let me, uh, and we could all look this up, and it's okay. And maybe my recollection is a little off, and or maybe yours is. That's okay. We'll, we can look it up. But my recollection of it is that it started as deeply unpopular. It didn't get worn down, and it wasn't the Democrats that ran campaigns against it. In fact, the Republicans were running ads in favor of it, and then they stopped because they could not move the numbers. I believe the first poll on the first version was in the ballpark of 17 or 19 percent popularity. People well, hated that bill from the day one because it, it was an it obvious was, giveaway to the rich. It was, I remember I did reporting on this. When it was passed, it was basically a wash. It was 40 some percent for it, 40 some percent against it. Then as Democrats pounded on it over the year of the campaign, it got less popular. That's all I'm saying. And, and, and but look at that documented. too. Even, and and even that, if I was so to was grant you that, David. That, was waged against Republicans and their policy got less popular. So for you to say that it hasn't happened in the Republican Party, I just lay that out as the most recent so, example where David, it has happened. I hear you, brother. And 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 even if I were to grant you that, and you know, look, you did reporting on it, so I'm not overly challenging. I might remember a different poll, etc. Right? But look, look at the conversation we're having. The Republicans started at 40 percent and came down to what 20 percent or so, right? Medicare for all starts at 70 percent. So that's a massive difference. The Republicans already started with deeply unpopular positions. Why are we assuming that the positions that are at 70 and 80% somehow will magically get below 50% and that they are not centrist or pragmatic? You are taking things that, that currently is, exist as the very center of the country. I mean, you would agree that 70% of the country is the center, right? That, that, that is a very popular policy. I'm just saying you put Medicare for all through a year long, well now it'll be a two year long campaign. And the popularity will it probably come down. Because guess what? The more exposure to anything in politics, the popularity of it comes down. Because you drill down on the positions, you drill down on how you're gonna get done, you drill down on a phase in. Look at what Kamala Harris said the other week. She was on CNN. She said, let's get a pro get lit rid of the private system, right? Three weeks later, she's in Iowa, she reels it in a bit. Now she's, would you call her a progressive? I'm, I, I'm guessing you probably like her politics, she reined it in within a three week period. I can show you the quote this past weekend in Iowa. She said, no, 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 we've got to still have a, a mechanism for a private option. So look, they may say they're all Medicare for all, but these are the candidates that are running on it and they have even 
curb their positions, if you listen to their specifics, they're even reining in expectations on it. So yeah. that, this is their own, this is the Democratic Party. This is not a Republican critique. I'm looking at the words of the Democratic politicians on this. Yeah, no, Democratic politicians uh, that live and breathe uh, Washington, D.C. And honestly, a lot of the mainstream media reporters constantly yelling at them, you're not pragmatic, you're not centrist, even though the polling indicates you are. You're not, you're not, you're not. Then all of a sudden get a little gun shy. And all their colleagues saying, hey, we're taking money from these guys. What are you doing? What are you doing? I got a think tank that got this report paid for by the healthcare industry that says you're not pragmatic. So make sure you reel it back in. And some of them reel it a little bit back in. Look, the primary is gonna decide who's right and who's wrong about where the Democratic Party stands on that. Right. And uh, but but saying that that is not a centrist position, I just I can't get past all of those being deeply popular. Well, last thing here, David. Look, you say it always gets whittled out, but that's not really true because when we passed Social Security, Roosevelt did. It it did not go down in popularity. It rose in popularity and it has stayed above eighty percent for decade after decade after decade. Why? Just, it was the government providing something that people desperately needed, and it works really well, and they really like it. Kind of like Medicare is, for all, Green New Deal, free college, and so isn't it possible that like those programs, it, you will be wrong? That it will remain incredibly popular, and if that's true, can I at least get a? Uh, 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 a promise from you that a couple of years from now, which at that point will be nearly irrelevant, but that's okay, that you'll come back and say, Cenk, you were right, those are centrist positions. What I called ultra progressive, it turns out the country's ultra progressive, they love those. As issues move, so social security was ultra progressive at the time, now it's mainstream. So I don't know what's gonna be mainstream in two years. That's, that's I mean, to predict that is 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 kind of insane, but I would also say that to put social security through the media environment now, I mean, social security didn't have to go through Twitter and Facebook and 24 hour cable news. And I mean, the environment that we live in now, any policy, you can't compare uh, you know, what was going on 50 years ago to, to today's media environment for any policy, for any politician. So I just don't think that's an apt comparison. To say what's going to be mainstream yeah. two years from now, maybe Medicare for all will be. I I have no way of knowing. I'm just looking at the analysis of what the Democratic politicians who are running for president are saying today. That's all I can do. Yeah. So David, uh, they try to coup against Roosevelt. So it's not like those were gentle times. Uh, so uh, so I hear you though, and I really appreciate you coming out. Great conversation. David Katney's at US News and World Report. Check out his writings. He's talking about the campaign all the time. So thank you, David, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay. All right, guys. A quick break. When we come back, a really interesting conversation about the sharing economy when we return. All right, back on the Young Turks. Joining me now is Alexandria Ravenel. She is an assistant professor of sociology at Mercy College and visiting scholar at the Institute for Public Knowledge at NYU. Her latest book is Hustle and Gig, Struggling and Surviving in the Sharing Economy. Thank you for joining us, we appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you're taking a little different approach than most. A lot of people are celebrating the sharing economy for the independence that it gives people and the control over their own schedule, financial future, etc. But you're concerned, why are you concerned? 
I'm concerned because workers are being exploited in the sharing economy or the gig economy. Um, we hear it marketed as though it's entrepreneurship for the masses. And really what ends up going on is that workers are walking into very dangerous situations where they're being exposed to physical risk and social, uh, sexual risk. And where they, if they're injured on the job, have no opportunity for redress. Yeah. So. I have mixed feelings about that. And so that you might say, wow, that's great. What do you mean you have mixed feelings? Well, look, sometimes I feel like some of those stuff is overhyped. Not the crimes themselves, they're horrific. But uh, so they'll say Craigslist killer. Yeah, but okay. yeah, but you could have gotten people out of the yellow pages and killed them in the past. It's just a new way of sharing information. So couldn't you, or you know, sexual assault, horrific crime, but it could have happened in a cab. So what am I missing? So in a cab, so I'm looking at the experience of the drivers or of the workers. In a cab, for instance, there is a barrier that's preventing the passenger from assaulting the driver, at least in New York. They also have an emergency button that's actually a crime to assault a cab driver in New York. And meanwhile, these rideshare drivers don't have those same protections. They're using their own personal vehicles. There's no emergency button, there's no barrier. Many of them don't have cameras and the services tell them that they are on their own as independent contractors. And so do you have, I know you interviewed 80 folks and so that's powerful. But is there statistics on whether Ubers or cabs, for example, are more dangerous? So statistics in the gig economy are actually very difficult to come by. Um, very famously, Uber at one point attempted to do a survey of its drivers, and they counted anyone who had given a drive, given a ride in the last six months as an active driver. I don't know about you, but if I stop going to work for a month, I don't count as an active worker. But they will use very broad definitions, and so it's very difficult to get statistics about the gig economy. But we do know that about 25% of American workers are making money through gig work at various times. How much? About 25%. Well, that's huge. So obviously, these are very important issues that we all have to grapple with. So let's talk about some protections for the workers, whether it's unionizing or, or uh, benefits. Uh, so how would we do that uh, in this situation? Do we, do we just say, no, we're not doing it, uh, Uber and TaskRabbit, et cetera, anymore? Or we are, but here are the new regulations. How, so yeah, help me out. Right, so regulation's not always the answer, but some regulation is definitely part of the answer when it comes to the gig economy. There's been some conversation through Senator Warren of setting up a portable benefit plan for gig workers, something they could bring from one project to another, from one gig or platform to another. There's also recently been some pilot work looking at setting up a sort of donation-based benefit fund for domestic workers. And that's only in a couple of places right now, they're trying it out. But the problem there, of course, is it's donation based. And so workers have to kind of rely on the generosity of their clients in order to pay for sick time or to pay for various benefits. A better option would probably be to look at having benefits that are across all platforms or require these platforms to pay their workers as W-2 workers. How would that work? Um, so they, 
and how does that give them more protection? So in the United States, if you are a W-2 worker, you are an employee, which means you have all of the standard workplace protections. You are protected against sexual harassment, discrimination. You uh, qualify for sick leave in most places, um, disability contribution, Social Security, Medicaid. If you are an independent contractor, you are outside all of those protections. One of the arguments that often comes up is people say, well, I wouldn't have the same level of flexibility. But there's actually no prohibition on W-2 workers having flexibility. It's just up to the platforms whether they'd be willing to do that. So if you are being sexually harassed or discriminated against in an Uber or Airbnb type of situation, who's the one doing the harassment and what can the company do about it? So usually the individual who's doing the harassing is actually the client. So I have one worker who is a chef for kitchen surfing and she cooks for a couple. And then they start inviting her to participate in a threesome. Or I have another task rabbit who tells me about actually being touched by a client where she begins rubbing on him. Um, right now, the only thing for people to do is to kind of excuse themselves and maybe reach out to the platform. But a lot of times they're scared to do so because it might get them labeled as a problem worker or uh, it could actually lead to a negative review from the client. So if you say, hey, I'm gonna uh, come down like a hammer on, on the companies that give negative repercussions for reporting sexual harassment, I'm gonna be a million percent on your side. Uh, and we've and we got to find a way to, to make sure that that does not happen, right? If it's regulation, great regulation, uh, whatever it might be. But on the other hand, it seems um, not only difficult, but I'm not sure it's even fair to hold a company responsible for the actions of the clients. So how in the world would they know what a random, you know, woman or guy is going to do when you call them in for task rabbit? Right, well, that's a fantastic point. But the problem is the worker doesn't know either. And these companies make it very easy for people to set up a number of accounts. You know, one of the things that often comes up with rideshare drivers is well, somebody has a credit card number, Uber or Lyft knows exactly who this person is. But Uber has gift cards that you can purchase. So you can actually be an incredibly anonymous passenger. You don't have to fill out your profile. And that's one of the things that often comes up is that the workers have to have profiles. They have to have their name and photo and little bios, but the clients don't. And so if they even had some basic checking, requiring a driver's license, for people to use these platforms, that would go a long way towards protecting the workers. Okay, see that's an idea I like. Uh, so if you're not going to you. do anything wrong, uh, and and this is not the you know Big Brother, this is not police, but it's a company saying if you want to use my services, you have to give a driver's license. So in case something goes wrong, I'm able to protect my workers. Great. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Now. You, I'm sure that you know that a lot of people love these services. And I'm not just talking about the clients, I'm talking about the workers that you are trying to protect. Uh, they love the freedom of being able to work whenever they want. They don't want an annoying boss like me uh, checking out their time, etc. You, you get it. So how, how do you uh, address those people? 
So that comes up a lot, actually, when I tell people about my work. They say, oh, I had this driver, or I had this Airbnb host, and they told me how much they love this work. And I always say to them, what do you say if, you, if your boss asks what you think of your job? You tell your boss you love your job. And so that's one of the things that often comes up. You know, My interviews with these workers were two and three hours long. And some of the stories that I get about the sexual harassment or finding themselves as a uh, drug mule, essentially, for either Uber or TaskRabbit, these are stories that come out after long conversations with people where they know that I'm not reviewing them. Um, I'm not their boss in that moment. And so a lot of times the stories that people get from just a short conversation with a gig worker is not actually going to give them the full story about what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, but it, the anecdotal evidence there is incredibly strong. So. Uh, and obviously we could agree to disagree and you wrote a whole book about it. What do I know? And I'm gonna give you an annoying Thomas Friedman like thing about how, well, I've been in a lot of Ubers and talked to a lot of them, right? But they really do seem to enjoy the freedom and it's logical, it's understandable. And so I guess to kind of conclude and bring all that together, how do we get the best of both worlds? Is that possible? Is it possible to give them that freedom and, and the things that they really like about the share economy, both for the clients, but mainly for the workers, and while still protecting them. Yes, absolutely. Um, we can implement benefit programs. We can uh, classify people as W-2 workers, but still giving them flexibility. We can develop protections where the platforms keep track of who these clients actually are, where the platforms are not able to have gift card programs. Those are all things that we can do to protect the workers. We can also look at how much workers are getting paid. You know, Even right now as independent contractors, a lot of times when they start to do the numbers and they discover what they're actually being paid, it ends up being a lot less than they think. I've met drivers who thought that they were making 70 or 80,000. And then when they finally do their taxes and they look at their expenses, they discover that it's much closer to minimum wage. Okay, uh, super interesting. Everybody check out Hustle and Gig, uh, pre appreciate the perspective. Thank you so much for coming on the Young Turks. Thank you for having me. All right, um, guys, we're out of time uh, for this half hour. We've got a whole other half hour of the Young Turks, uh, that is for the members. And we're gonna do some controversial topics, uh, Michael Cohen on what Trump actually thought about his Vietnam deferments, uh, an insane story that of Donald Trump uh, buying his own portrait. We have details we did not have before, wonderfully embarrassing for Donald Trump. And then a uh, little disagreement that I've got with WikiLeaks, we'll hash that out, kind of. Uh, tyt.com slash join to become a member and get that last half hour or uh, this, uh, you can't get a week free at tyt.com slash trial. All right, we'll see you over there.